Don't judge someone's relationship with God on the basis of what they are experiencing, whether it's prosperity or adversity. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you would open your Bibles to Job 4, Job 4, keep them open if you have them. We're going to be going through uh, quite a number of passages today. Uh, We're in the book of Job, and of course, when we think of Job, we think of trials and troubles and pain and suffering, and actually, one of the challenges you get when you read the book of Job is you realize it's really not that unique. Uh, Almost everyone has some degree of pain and suffering. Maybe not to the extent that Job has, but almost everybody I know has some scar tissue uh, in this life. And being righteous and following Jesus does not guarantee you will never wear bandages. Oswald Chambers reminds us that the bad thief was crucified, the penitent thief was crucified, and the Son of God was crucified. By this we know the widespread heritage of suffering. I thought that was a good line. Since suffering is so universal, we know that God has purpose in it. And being righteous does not prevent suffering in this life. God deems suffering to be essential for his purposes and actually beneficial for our good. Malcolm Muggeridge, the British author, Christian scholar, playwright, and critic once wrote, quote, I can say with complete truthfulness, that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not happiness. I think we can say that. When we look back on the experiences of our life that shaped us, that changed us, almost all of that included some degree of significant problems and pain. Because affliction teaches us lessons that affluence simply does not have the ability to teach us. Among other things, that's why God allows for our suffering and even arrange it. Well, Job's life was radically shaped and changed by suffering. As you recall from our first lesson, Job was healthy, wealthy, wise, godly, businessman, godly, uh, family man. And Job 1 and 2 are really unique in the Bible in the sense that they really are the only two chapters that pull back the curtains of heaven, if you will, and let us observe God's interactions with the angels and with Satan specifically. As you recall in the first scene, God is literally on his throne and getting a a review, a management review of all the angels that come in and report back on what God has told them to do and give a report on what's going on in the universe. And God highlights his servant Job in front of all the angels. He said, there's no one like him on the earth. Of course, as you know, Satan charges Job and accuses Job of only serving God because he has been blessed by God. So, in essence, Job or, or, or Job is serving God only because God bribed him to serve him. That's Satan's charge. Job would not serve you if you took away all his stuff, his possessions, his family, etc., etc. He really doesn't love you for who you are. He loves you for all the goodies you give him. So God said, fine, take away as wealth. And as you recall... Uh, It didn't take Satan very long, and one afternoon he lost all his possessions and all of his children. Surprise, surprise, from Satan's standpoint, Job does not curse God. He worships God and blesses God and says, The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, and this is after he's buried all ten children, and he is sitting in the ash heap, and he is a broken man. Scene two is a somewhat replication of scene one with some variations. All the angels are back in heaven. God is expecting a report on what he commanded them to do. And Satan accuses God again of bribing Job and accuses Job again of only serving God for selfish reasons. And he says, well, you took away his wealth and he still serves you. But I promise you, if you take away his health, he'll curse you 
to your face. So God grants Satan permission to attack Job's health. And as we found out a couple weeks ago, Satan immediately causes Job to break out in boils, which instantaneously cause great pain. And when you go through the diagnostic list of his symptoms, you start scratching because it's really descriptive. So that's his physical well-being. Gets worse. His wife tells him, why don't you just be done? Curse God, get out of here. Stop the suffering. Very supportive and understanding marital situation at that point. And of course, as we said, um, none of us have buried 10 children, so we really don't know how we would respond. So we, we need to look at this with some compassion and understanding, given the fact that this family has been run over with a Mack truck on multiple occasions. Job very kindly says, you speak as one of the foolish women. He doesn't call her a fool, but he says, I'm not going to curse God. I'm going to maintain my integrity. Some weeks later, because obviously they didn't have, you know, um, internet and um, things like that, everything went by camel train, Job's three friends come to visit him. And they do the proper thing. They sit with him for seven days and seven nights on the ash heap with him, and they don't say a word. Now, I don't know about you, but there are people in my life who cannot not talk for seven minutes. Even sleeping, they talk, right? Let alone seven days. That's really pretty remarkable to be in the face of intense suffering for seven days and say nothing. Most of us are going to want to fix it, right? We're going to want to make it better. So it's very, very difficult to do that. Chapter 3, Job, who is depressed to the point of despair, he doesn't curse God, but he curses the day he was born. He has no idea why he is suffering. He knows absolutely nothing about God and Satan's conversation. Job's concept of God, along with his three friends, is that God always blesses the righteous and always punishes the wicked in this life. God himself, remember in chapter 1 and 2, had said that Job was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. God said he's unique on planet Earth. There's only one of him on the Earth. We know he was righteous. So Job, who's righteous, cannot understand why God is afflicting him. He is in such pain, he wishes he had never been born. And that triggers the beginning of the next section of this book, which is the poetry section, beginning in verse 3. His three friends listen to Job curse the day he's born because he's in such despair, and they respond. And there's going to be three cycles of dialogue between Job and his friends in this book. Each one of these three friends are going to speak three times, except Zophar, he speaks twice. And Job responds to each one of these. So this is a heavy dialogue uh, conversation. Just so you know, let's talk about a couple things with respect to names. Eliphaz is the oldest, and he's kind of the leader of the gang. And his name probably means, my God is fine gold. Be an interesting name for a kid, Eliphaz. Bildad is even a little more... Different, it means son of contention, which means his father or his mother was contention. Just saying, right? And Zophar would be right up to date. It means Twitter, right? So Zophar, right? <laughs> what are you doing? I'm Zophar and my friends, right? Okay, that's a tweet. Thomas Constable um, notes that these three speeches begin as a discussion, move to a debate, and end in a dispute just like many conversations occur online, right? They start as a discussion, then move to a debate, and it's a dispute. Throughout this section of the book, there are two main conversational themes that run throughout. One's vertical, one's horizontal. We're going to see Job have 11 speeches. Some are to his friends, horizontal. He's going to contend and dispute and argue with their conclusions. So that's the horizontal conversation he has with his friends. And then there's a vertical conversation where Job is praying, he's crying out to God. So these two horizontal and vertical conversational components are going to be a part of this, uh, this uh, three cycles of speeches. You will note if you read this book from top to bottom, which I highly recommend you do in an afternoon, his friend's speeches get shorter and shorter. And Job's rebuttals get longer and longer and longer. And finally, his friends just give up. It's interesting that there is no change of opinion despite 30-some chapters of conversation. 
his friends never changed their opinion about why Job is suffering. They believe that God deals with people on the basis of divine retribution or payback. Your behavior towards God determines God's behavior toward you. That was the formula. God always blesses the righteous and always punishes the wicked in this life. Therefore, all suffering is God's direct punishment for specific personal sin. And since Job was suffering greatly, then it's obvious he must have sinned greatly. If you buy the assumption, you buy the conclusion. Now, Job agrees with our concept of divine retribution at this point, but he can't find any sin in his life. And so as we're going to find out in this lesson, he concludes that God is unjust. God is not right in afflicting him. His friends conclude that God is just in afflicting him, and Job is a liar. He has great sin in his life, and he's lying about it. This is not really the model for comforting a friend in extreme pain. Just in case you're wondering, you would read this and say, you know, if I do the opposite of what happened here, I might have some benefit for my friends. Both Job and his friends believe that they alone have wise insight. And of course, you know lots of people that believe that they alone have wise insight. So they argue and they ridicule each other, so it gets to be rather heated from time to time. Pastor Ray Stedman calls Job's friends Eliphaz the Eloquent, Bildad the Brutal, and Zophar the Zealot. That's probably not far off. Eliphaz's authority for his arguments is personal experience. He says, I have seen, therefore, it's true, because my opinion is so good. Bildad cites tradition as his authority. History proves that my position is correct. He's the attorney, and Zophar uses intuition, and he's a dogmatist. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter 4, verse 1 of Job. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered, If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Right. Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands, but now it has come upon you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember now, who ever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. Here's the principle. Don't judge someone's relationship with God on the basis of what they are experiencing, whether it's prosperity or adversity. I'm going to say it again. Don't judge someone's relationship with God on the basis of what they are experiencing, whether it's prosperity or adversity. Eliphaz says, Job, you've encouraged many people in the past, so now help yourself. You know, physician, heal yourself. Take your own medicine. This is a very sympathetic beginning, you might note, uh, to a problem, uh, not Eliphaz then states the principle that governs his thinking from top to bottom, which he will never change. And that principle is the innocent never perish, and the upright are never destroyed. Eliphaz says, God is the one who ensures that justice is always done. So if you are suffering, God is judging you. If you really were righteous, Job, these things would not be happening to you. Now, he says, according to what I have seen, Eliphaz is... Is, is his authority is his own experience. In his experience, evil is always destroyed and goodness is always rewarded. He doesn't understand that personal experience is limited. So I know that in our culture, we have many people that have a very high opinion of their own opinion. Do you know anybody like that? They're very convinced that their point of view is the point of view. So if you agree with them, you are very wise and you are very good. And if you disagree with them, you are very stupid and very evil, right? I mean, that's how most of social media operates. We come at it from the point of view, only God's word is absolute and authoritative because it comes from the creator, not the creature. Subjective human opinion about anything is very fragile and very fallible. Foundation upon which to declare truth because only God can see the whole picture. So Eliphaz is going to bolster his argument to Job that he's right and Job is wrong, and he recounts a vision he has one night. 
He says, I saw a spirit, definitely not the Holy Spirit. That much is pretty obvious. Uh, asking the question in verse 17 of chapter 4, can, a man, can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? He puts no trust even in his servants, and against his angels he charges air. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is the dust, who are crushed before the moth? So he's saying, Job, you say you're righteous. You say you're blameless. You say there, you, you cannot find any sin in your heart. He said, no one is just before God. Everyone is a sinner. So clearly, there's sin in your life. You're lying. God, the creator, is transcendent. He's exalted above angels and humans. God even holds angels accountable. How much more is he going to withhold you accountable, Job? And he says, you want a comparison about what humans are like? He says, compare, compare humans to moths. That's a good comparison. A moth has a fairly short lifespan compared to you human being, right? Well, he says, then the same way, the human lifespan is nothing when compared to God. So he's basically saying, everyone is a sinner. How can you possibly claim that there's not sin in your life that would warrant this judgment, this suffering? Now, this is all true. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. But Eliphaz is doing something that many, many people do with well intentions. They misapply the truth to a given situation. God himself in chapters 1 and 2 said Job was absolutely blameless and upright. Job stated, I'm unaware of any unconfessed sin in my life that God would punish me for. My relationship with God, to my knowledge, is one of spiritual integrity and openness. And Eliphaz doesn't come to understand Job. He doesn't come to uh, do anything but condemn him. Eliphaz is like a physician who says, um, you know, you don't need to tell me your symptoms. Um, I don't need to examine you. Uh, no MRIs or x-rays are required. I know that you have stage four blank, and we're going to do surgery. Yeah. He's absolutely convinced he's correct. He doesn't do any diagnostic work. He doesn't have to talk to Job about his past. He doesn't need to ask any questions. He just needs to come in and make statements. He is judging Job solely based on the fact that Job is suffering, and he knows nothing about Job's internal walk with God. He simply is looking on the outside, and what does Scripture say about humans who look on the outside versus God who looks at the heart? So we have misdiagnosis here writ large, and where you have misdiagnosis, you have mistreatment. And Eliphaz is pretty confident of his own skills. If you jump over to chapter 5, verse 3, this is arrogant to the core. He says, Eliphaz is talking about himself, and he says, I have seen the foolish taking root, and I cursed his abode immediately. His sons are far from safety. They are even oppressed in the gate. Neither is there a deliverer. Verse 6. For affliction doesn't come from the dust, neither does trouble sprout from the ground. For a man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. So he credits himself with tremendous insight. He says, I can spot a sinner from a mile away, baby, and I cursed him right away. I mean, they didn't even have to, I didn't have to see any fruit, man. I saw him sprouting and I cursed him. So therefore, I'm surely competent to, to diagnose and cure Job. Of course, we know people like this, right? Very quick to fix. Eugene Peterson said something that really struck with him. I'm going to repeat it twice for you. Sufferers attract fixers the way roadkill attracts vultures. <laughs> if you've ever suffered, you know what I'm talking about. Sufferers attract fixers the way roadkill attracts vultures. Eliphaz acknowledges, well, the wicked can prosper temporarily. After all, they do sprout and they take root. But he said, God will always punish them, right? The wicked man's family will be oppressed. There'll be no one to deliver them from judgment. He says, look, Affliction doesn't just come from nowhere, right? I mean, it just doesn't happen. Suffering is always caused by specific sin. That's his diagnosis. In the same way that sparks come out from a fire, Job, your troubles come from inside yourself. And now, of course, he's got Job diagnosed. He tells Job, here's exactly what you need to do about it. This is something you probably wouldn't say to your friends if you loved them, but here's what he says, chapter 5 beginning in verse 8. But as for me, I would seek God, like Job hasn't been, right? And I would place my cause before God. Verse 17, 
Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Verse 18. For he inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds and his hands also heal. From six troubles he will deliver you. Even in seven, evil will not touch you. Verse 24. And you will know that your tent is secure, for you will visit your abode and fear no loss. You will also know that your descendants will be many, and your offspring is the grass of the earth. I love this verse 26. You will come to the grave in full vigor, like the stacking of grain in its season. How do I know this? Verse 27. Behold this, we have investigated, thus it is. Hear it and know for yourself. Wow. Remind him not to show up when I'm in the hospital. <laughs> Here's the principle. Having a reconciled relationship with God does not guarantee a problem-free life. I know you know that. That is not news. But when troubles come, sometimes we find out what we really thought was not what was. So having a reconciled, a right relationship, a, a, a sin Confessed, reconciled relationship with God does not guarantee a problem-free life. What is utterly interesting is it took me 10 hours of study to understand one very interesting fact. All of Job's friends tell him that he should seek God. There is not one mention in the entire book of any of Job's friends asking God for wisdom before they opened their trap. Not one. There is no record in this entire book that they ever prayed for Job or prayed with Job. Not one. Apparently, they were so confident in their own wisdom that they felt they didn't need God's help, but Job obviously did. That would be called Human wisdom, which from God's point of view is foolishness. As a result, all three of them completely misdiagnosed Job's condition. They condemned him as a sinner. So here's a basic application principle. Always talk to God before you talk to people. Even if it's just a response. Someone says, what do you think about blah, blah, blah? Well, I think... Talk to God before you say what you think. You'll have to apologize left later on. You know? So pray for wisdom before you give advice. Pray for wisdom. And if you're going to give advice, for heaven's sake, say what God says, not what you think, unless they agree. Right? So Job, Job is now diagnosed, and Job has his treatment plan. He says, Job, it's obvious your suffering is caused by sin. God is disciplining me for a sin. Don't treat it lightly. Don't claim your innocence. Seek God. Accept his discipline and reproof. And that is all superb advice for someone who has been sinning. Obviously, God delights in restoring a repentant sinner to a reconciled relationship. He loves to restore sinners. And if Job had been sinning, then repentance was exactly the right treatment plan. However, Job is blameless and God's sight. Eliphaz makes some pretty big promises. He said, Job, if you repent from sin, God will protect you from trouble. It's interesting, with that statement, Eliphaz is now agreeing with Satan in chapter 1 and 2. Satan said, the only reason you serve God is for the benefits. I mean the material, earthly benefits. Health and wealth, power, prosperity, large family, vigorous, good health. That's the reason you serve God. And that's what exactly what Eliphaz is. If you serve God, if you repent, he's going to bless your life. You'll go to the grave in full vigor, which means, man, you'll be running decathlons and marathons until you drop into the grave. No ill health. Whoa, right? You'll have lots of children. They'll all be healthy, no problems. Sounds like the health and wealth gospel, doesn't it? God is not worth serving unless he gives you material benefits. That's Eliphaz and that's Satan. And that is not the gospel of the Bible. The greatest blessing of knowing, loving, and serving God is not material blessing. The greatest blessing is the spiritual reality of being forgiven and having an eternal relationship with a loving Heavenly Father forever in heaven. That's the greatest blessing. 
So Eliphaz, and we're going to see in subsequent weeks, his three friends fail to consider all the reasons why God may allow someone to suffer. Lord willing, in subsequent weeks, we're going to go through these. But God can allow us to suffer in order to purify us from sin. That's one. That's not always or only or maybe even often, but it's a reason. Number two, suffering can prove our faithfulness to God. Demonstrate it not just to him, but to ourselves. And number three, suffering may not be about you at all. It may be about your testimony to other people about God's faithfulness, like your children and grandchildren and neighbors and coworkers. We're going to take a look at those on future year, weeks accordingly. So Eliphaz has reduced God's behavior to a formula. He said, look, your relationship with God is like a contract. If you do this, trust and obey, then God must do this. Overwhelmingly bless you with material possessions. That's the deal. God is a formula. We got him figured out, man. So when you do that, who's in control? If God only treats me like I treat him, then if I treat him X, Y, Z, then he's got he's to do for me what I want him to do. So the creature is trying to control the creator. Eliphaz is filled with moralizing platitudes that are very meaningless given Job's circumstances. If you've ever been at a funeral of your loved one and heard someone say something to the effect of, well, don't be sad after all they are in heaven. Well, that's true. But it doesn't meet the need of the moment. Sometimes we do need to be reminded of what's true. God does cause all things to work together for good. Sometimes we simply need to know that someone else feels our sorrow with us and doesn't need to try and fix it with a platitude. Someone once said, you don't heal a broken heart with logic, you heal a broken heart with love. How true. So Job is in despair at this point. If you go to Job 6, verse 9, Job says, would that God were willing to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. Verse 10. But it is still my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain. That's one of the more unusual phrases in the Bible. I rejoice in unsparing pain. You can underline that. That I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Job says, death is better than this suffering. But I am comforted because I have not denied God and I have not denied His word. I am still loyal to Him, but I don't understand why this is happening. So thus far in this great heavenly backdrop, Job's loyalty is making Satan a liar. And all of heaven sees that Job is faithful. And Satan is the liar. Now Job responds to his friends. Now there's a horizontal component of his conversation. Go to chapter 6, verse 14. He's talking to his three friends based on Eliphaz's speech. And he said, For the despairing man there should be kindness from his friends, lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty. My brothers have acted deceitfully like a wadi, like the torrents of wadis which vanish, which are turbid because of ice and into which the snow melts. When they become waterless, they are silent. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. Indeed, you, verse 21, you have now become such, you see a terror and are afraid. Here's the principle. Genuine friends are loyal and show up when you need them. You know this. I'm not telling you a thing you don't already. This is a reminder. Genuine friends are loyal and show up when you need them. Job says, I should expect kindness from my friends. Kindness translates here loyalty. I should expect loyalty. They hadn't been loyal at all. They've judged him. He said, you guys are as unreliable and as deceitful as a flash flood. Now, a wadi, a wadi is a, a stream bed. Most of the year it's dry, but when you get snowmelt or rainfall up in the mountains, these normally dry stream beds are just choked with the noise and the sound of flash floods. Have you ever seen a flash flood? The first hundred yards is nothing but debris. I mean, sometimes you'll see three feet of branches in front. It looks like a snake moving down the riverbed because there's so much debris that the rushing waters take along. Uh, and, but during summer, the water disappears. And that stream bed is silent. There's no debris, there's no water. And when do you really need water? In the summer, not in the 
winter, right? When it's hot. Do you realize tomorrow's the first day of summer? I think the date probably should be moved. I just, yeah. yeah. For those of you who are not here, it's it's a hundred and some degrees this last couple of days. So it's in the summertime when you really need the water. It's in times of trouble and trial you really need friends. And Job says, when I really need water from my friends, I get judgment. I get condemnation. I get misdiagnosis. He said, you guys are as flaky as, as a flash flood. You're here and you're gone just when I need you. And he says, the reason for that, very interesting, is because you're scared. You're terrified. Here's why. If I'm innocent, if Job is really blameless, and my suffering is not based on personal sin, but my suffering is just because Almighty Sovereign God willed it. That's why I'm suffering, just because my Heavenly Father chose it. Then you three could be singled out by God for suffering as well. Because I suffered without sin, you could suffer without sin as well, simply by the will of God. And that scares you. So you have got to find me guilty with sin, so you will think it'll never happen to me, baby. And you know and I know that there are some people who will not come and visit you when you're sick because they think you have cooties. Spiritual cooties. And if, if you got XYZ suffering, they might get it too. So that's one. The sovereignty of God could visit you with suffering as well as them. On the other hand, if Job really had sinned and his three friends comforted him, who's going to be angry? God's going to be angry because you should be judging him because I'm judging him. How dare you comfort the man that I'm judging because he's really got sin in his life. You're approving of his sin, and they were scared that God would be bad with him. So his three friends are highly motivated. They must find sin in his life. They've got to blame his suffering on something because they've got to exonerate themselves. Otherwise, it could happen to them. The core of this is their concept of God is all wrong. They view God as an unfeeling ogre, a judge, unfeeling, uncaring. They don't view him as a father, a loving father. They had to believe that Job was a sinner or their concept with how God related to people made no sense because they couldn't put together how a good and just God could allow a good and innocent man to suffer. That was the equation they're trying to fill in. Job says, if I've sinned, show me the evidence. Chapter 6, go to verse 24. He says, teach me and I'll be silent. And show me now how I have erred. How painful are honest words, but what does your argument prove? Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in despair belong to the wind? Verse 28. And now please look at me and see if I lie to your face. Verse 29. Desist now. Let there not be injustice. Even desist. My righteousness is yet within me. Job says, if I've sinned, show me. Pointed out, I can't see it. I am clean as far as I know before the Lord. If there's sin in my life, show me. Give me an accurate diagnosis. He said, your words are very painful, but they're pointless. You're declaring me wrong simply to make yourselves right. Here he says something very applicable to us. He says, you're reacting to my words. You don't understand the context within which I'm speaking. He says, don't you know that words spoken in pain and despair should sometimes fly away with the wind and be forgotten? If you have a friend who's suffering, don't judge them for what comes out of their mouth. Because when you're in intense pain and you can't get to Megan and get a prescription and you're suffering, some things may come out of your mouth that you really don't mean. Most of us say stuff when we're hangry that we really don't mean. That means hungry and angry. And yesterday it was really bad because it was hot and hungry and angry and sweaty and sticky. And then some idiot does something that you normally might go, yeah, it's 70 degrees, you know, it's good, it's good. It's not good in 115 when they do that stupid stuff, right? So we 
unload the bus on them. Sometimes only in the car, right? If everything in the car was taped, we'd be in trouble, right? So, I mean, literally, you know. So Job says, look, I'm in despair. I'm cursing the day of my birth. Stop judging me for what I say in intense pain. We did a lesson here a number of years ago, and I opened the lesson with, never judge your wife by the words that come out of her mouth when she's giving birth. Yes. Yeah, okay, same thing. He says, I'm in agony, and I'm saying, Baba, I want to die, right? He says, I'm not lying. He says, look at me. And you look at him, and I mean, he's a mess. He's skin to toe. He's got t- hard skin that's breaking and oozing and attracting bugs. And, it, it, you know, he says, I'm not lying. I have integrity. I don't know of any sin in my life. It would be deceitful for me to confess sin in my life just to get you guys off my back. Gets better. Job 8, verse 1. His buddy Bildad, the brutal, opens his mouth and starts talking. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite responded, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a mighty wind. Hmm. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your son sinned against him, then he turned them over to the power of their wrongdoing. If you will search for God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he will stir himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Verse 8. Please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers. Will they not teach and tell you? Verse 10, verse 20. He sums it all up. Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers. Here's the principle. God does not always behave as we expect. He does what he desires, not what we demand. God does not always behave as we expect. I actually wrote at the beginning, God seldom behaves like we expect. But anyway, God does not always behave as we expect. He does what he desires, not what we demand. Bildad is so comforting. He opens his mouth and he says, Job, you're a windbag. That's a mighty wind, right? You're a windbag. You're just running your mouth. Bildad wants a God who conforms to his ideas about how a God should behave. Bildad wants a predictable God. So do most humans. They want a God who can be reduced to a formula. Bildad does not want a God whose infinite ways contain holy mysteries. That's a problem, because God, a God who conforms himself to human demands no longer is God. He's just a servant of human demands. God will always act as he chooses, not necessarily as we expect. Many, many times... Human expectations are not revealed until they're violated. We don't know what we expect until somebody violates the expectation. And then we go, how could you do that? Well, I didn't know you expected it. Well, I didn't know I expected it either, but you don't have no right to treat me like that. Well, God's going to do in his sovereignty what he chooses, and it's almost always going to be beyond what we anticipate. We think we know how God should behave. And God will, always obli- God will always behave according to his promises. He obligates himself by his promises. We don't obligate him by our expectations. He's father. We're children. The two-year-old does not command the father what to do. So Bildad says, well, how do we know this? He says, well, look at history. He said, God usually punishes the wicked and blesses the innocent. That's true. Therefore, he will always punish the wicked and always bless the innocent in this life in ways we can observe. Since God is always just, he never allows the innocent to suffer, for that would be unjust. Therefore, Job, you're suffering, God is just, and God is paying you back for prior sins. And then he takes his thinking to the logical conclusion. He says, Job, since your children died, And God only punishes the wicked. Therefore, your children must have been wicked. Therefore, God was just, gave them what deserved, and killed them all for their sins. 
That's the logical conclusion of this kind of thinking. All suffering can only be explained by specific sin. Really? What do you tell a mom who has a miscarriage or a stillbirth? This thinking has consequences. And it misrepresents God of the Bible. It's self-righteous arrogance to think that the mysteries of God's sovereignty can be stuffed into the shoebox of human understanding. But we try and do it all the time. What's really tragic here is that Job's friends value their theology more than their friendship with Job. They had to be right more than they cared about him. And there are some people that live that way. They were willing to condemn him for sins he did not commit because they were scared of their own positions. Their moralizing formulas reduced God to the status of a rule-bound, angry ogre, not a compassionate father who loves his children. They misrepresented him, and that's why God judges them at the end of the book. Bildad parrots the past, but he's not willing to examine his theory and the life and new evidence. He never asked. None of them ever asked. Wonder if Job could be innocent. Then what? If he is innocent, maybe I need to change my thinking about Job and about God. But they were willing to do that. They had their little box, and everything had to fit in their little box. And I say this with great sorrow. Many Christians are guilty, 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 guilty of this. And the world looks at us and says, if that's how your God operates, why would I want to get to know him? My own father was a jerk, and your God is a cosmic jerk, if that's how he's going to treat people. We misrepresent God because we have to be right. Bildad says, look, if you confess, God will forgive. That's true. But he says, history teaches us that God never rejects a man of integrity, always judges evildoers, and if you repent, God will stop your suffering right now. You've heard, how many of you have seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Tradition! That's this guy. Always this way, right? Verse 9. Job now responds. He says, verse 2, In truth, I know this is so. But how can a person be in the right with God? Verse 10. It is God who does great things, the unfathomable, and wondrous works without number. Verse 14. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he bruises me with a storm and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath and he saturates me with bitterness. If it is a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. And if it's a matter of justice, who can summon him into court? Verse 20, though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. Verse 22, it is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. Verse 23, he mocks the despair of the innocent. Verse 24, the earth is given into the hand of the wicked. Here's the principle. It is logically false and morally wrong to conclude that God is unjust because he allows the innocent to suffer. It is logically false and morally wrong to conclude that God is unjust because he allows the innocent to suffer. So Job says, I want to go to court. We're going to have a lawsuit and we're going to find out who's right and who's wrong. I can't win against God because he's almighty. God does whatever he wants. And by the way, he's accountable to no one. He's an out-of-control God. He's given me suffering and I don't deserve it. Since God allows the innocent to suffer, even if I confess, God will still consider me guilty. God is so wise that I can't persuade him that I'm innocent. Besides, God doesn't hear me anyway. I mean, he doesn't listen anymore, right? He says, he multiplies my wounds without cause. God is afflicting me with pain and he has no reason to do so. And then he steps over a line 
and he accuses God of injustice. He said, though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. God doesn't, de- doesn't care about the innocent. The earth is controlled by the wicked. So he's, now, he's moved over a line from questioning God to accusing God of being evil. So what's utterly convoluted, in the same way that Job's friend insists that Job is wrong so they can be right, God, Job now accuses God of being wrong so that he can be right. In the same way that Job's friend accused him of being wrong so they can be right, Job now accuses God of being wrong so he can be right. God, you're unjust. You judge me, and I'm guiltless, therefore you're unjust. It's not right for you to judge an innocent man and cause them to suffer. Because I've not sinned. I want to go to court. I'm going to, I want to force you to give me the justice that I deserve. Job believes that it's impossible for a good God to cause an innocent man to suffer and still be a good God. That formula doesn't work for him. Chapter 9, verse 32. He's got a problem. He said, God is not a man as I am that I may answer him, that we may go to court together, verse 33. There is no arbitrator between us who can place his hand on us both. Go to chapter 10, verse 3. Is it right for you indeed to oppress and reject the labor of your hands and to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? Chapter 10, verse 7. According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. So Job says, God, you're unjust because I am just and I don't deserve to suffer. You are aloof. You don't care. You're detached from my troubles. We need an umpire. We need a referee. We need a mediator. Someone who can go between you and me. I can't go to you direct. You're in heaven. You're almighty. You're all wise. I'm a man. We need a mediator. Someone who can represent both of us. And we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. God knew we were going to need a mediator, and he provided that in the New Testament. Job thinks God is not listening because God doesn't appear to be taking any action. Have we ever felt that way? God, why don't you do something like yesterday? How long do I have to live with this situation, whatever this situation is? And we want God to put a period on the end of the sentence. And the truth of it is, there are some things in our life that God will put an end to. And there are some things he says, my child, you will live with this as long as you are alive on planet Earth. Because that is my will for your life. And we hate that. Especially if it's painful. We want God to do something, what we want him to do. And because God does not answer our prayers the way that we want, but we believe he's not paying attention, or even worse, we believe he is paying attention. He just doesn't care. But both of those are utterly false conclusions. God has eternal purposes beyond what we can comprehend. That's why Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to him. We walk by faith, not by sight. God will do things in our lives that we simply do not understand. And we're not meant to understand it all. He reveals to us what we're supposed to know. The rest we trust him for. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on what? Your own understanding in all your ways, including your suffering ways, your painful ways, your heartache ways, in all your ways, what? Submit to him, acknowledge him, acknowledge his lordship over all of that suffering and say, Lord, you understand my pain. We talked about this last week. You look at your suffering through the eyes of the cross. If you ever doubt that God doesn't love you, Look at the cross. He's demonstrated his love. He laid down his life for us. So we know we have a loving Heavenly Father because he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him, what? Freely give us all 
things. The truth is, our loving Heavenly Father allows us to suffer on earth for our eternal good and His eternal glory. Okay, let's summarize. Marty, you can come and lead us in prayer and praise her. Tom, number one, don't judge someone's relationship with God based on what you're experiencing, whether it's prosperity or adversity. I'm going to reframe that for you. Don't judge your experience with God based on what you are experiencing, whether it's prosperity or adversity. It's easy to look at someone else whose life appears to be going well, everything's going their way, and you're swimming into a hurricane virtually every day, and you go, I must not be loved. Stop. That's not true. You are loved. God is entrusting you with the set of experiences that he knows you need at the time. Sometimes it's prosperity, sometimes it's adversity, and sometimes it's both at the same time in different areas of your life. Number two, having a reconciled relationship with God does not guarantee a problem-free life. One of the blessings of being old is that we all are living with a banquet of consequences, right? Good and bad. And so almost everybody at our stage of life has scar tissue. Lots of it. That's comforting. You look around and you go, I'm not the only idiot who's dealing with this, right? There's a lot of fellow idiots that are dealing with this thing. I mean, we're all on the spiritual journey, this pilgrimage together, and we're all picking up stripes and stumbles along the way. That's normal. Don't expect any different. Number three, genuine friends are loyal and show up when you need them. And they don't try and fix you. They accept where you are and they pray with you and pray for you. Number four, God, sovereign God, does not always behave as we expect or we demand. He does what he desires, not what we demand. That's because he's God and we ain't. Number five, it's logically false and morally wrong to conclude that God is unjust because he allows the innocent to suffer. His plans are far beyond ours, and God is gunning for eternity. His plan for you is he wants you happy in eternity forever and ever and ever. He will make us like Jesus. Amen? Say amen. amen. And that process is going to involve suffering. It will. And he is with us every step of the way. I love you. Thanks for coming. I think we have enough to think about and do. Um, love you guys now that you know Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30am in the choir room we would love for you to join us here at Manna we believe in doing life together so if you're in need of prayer submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.